John's Gospel, the ninth chapter. To those that might hear this sermon at another time, I would recommend that you read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, which describe the gospel of Jesus Christ centered around the life and the anointed power and predestinated purpose and coming again promises of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I would suggest that you meditate on Psalm 139, which is God's intimate and perfect detail of each of his own in all the details of their formation in their mother's womb, the thoughts that they ever have in their minds, every detail of their lives. He's with them wherever they go, wherever they are, whatever their circumstances, he is there with them. And the appropriate response to the enemies of God is to hate them and to call upon the Lord to perfect us in righteousness. John chapter 9. The entire chapter is dedicated to Jesus healing, converting, and defending a man born blind. It exposes the wicked bias and stubborn ignorance of religious leaders defending a party line. It exposes the fear of men to resist religious rulers due to implied or threatened consequences. It shows the boldness of the few willing to stand on certain evidence rather than prejudice. It shows sound reasoning for an irrational opposition to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This chapter shouldn't be read any differently than other chapters. It is to convince us of Jesus Christ that we might believe on him as the Son of God and that by believing on him as the Son of God we might lay hold of eternal life. The chapter can be divided into seven scenes. Verses 1 through 7 show us Jesus finding and healing a man born blind. Verses 8 through 12 show us the man's exchange with his neighbors as they question his healing. Verses 13 through 17 are the blind man's first exchange or examining by the Pharisees. Then those Pharisees in verses 18 through 23 examine the man's parents and then they examine the man again in verses 24 through 34. Then Jesus finds him and converts him. The second time, and the final three verses are Jesus condemning the Pharisees as being the true blind men. Let me read to you the first seven verses, the first scene that we come upon in this wonderful drama, this history recorded for us by our beloved brother John. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay 
and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Amen Amen and amen. Amen. Let's go. John chapter 9. Verse 1 is wonderful. There's points to be taken from verse 1 that are of value to us. As Jesus passed by, it has value in the attention and affection of Jesus in his travels is better than the attention or affection you will ever have from anyone else. He saw. The vision that counts is God seeing us. It's his eyes running to and fro throughout the whole earth, not ours running over the pages of a book or a sunset or a sunrise. It's his vision of us that counts. He saw a man, a man, not an institution for the blind, not a class for the blind. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. God hasn't guaranteed anyone a perfect birth. God owes no man a perfect birth. Any imperfect birth could be more imperfect. Embrace it. It's for the glory of God. Wise men understand that a decline in their comfort from birth or any other event that results in the greater glory of God is a good exchange. And this man would, did, and others like him have, like Fanny Crosby that I referred to a few moments ago. Let me take a few moments and start out with this overview of John 9 from the standpoint of this being one man born blind. Yes, I love to focus on the attention and affection of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me one by one, one at a time. We should love souls one at a time. We have in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where we are introduced to Andrew, then Peter, then Philip, then Nathaniel. Individual men. We're told about them by name. We're told about their first encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, the majority of the chapter is taken up, John chapter 3, with Nicodemus, a single man. In John chapter 4, the majority of the chapter is taken up with a single woman, the woman of Samaria. In John chapter 5, the chapter is taken up, the majority of it, circumstances surrounding the healing of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, where it told us there was a great multitude of folk, but he healed one. There were many blind men in Israel. He healed one. And I want us to embrace that and find comfort in it. There are other examples throughout the pages of the New Testament that are also precious. Jesus dealt personally with the woman of Canaan, the Syrophoenician woman. A glorious exchange between him and her. And he healed her and her daughter. The Gadarene in Mark chapter 5. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Mary Magdalene. He appealed, he appeared 
first to her after his resurrection from the dead in Mark 16. A sinner woman in Luke chapter 7 gets the attention of the Savior over his host, Simon the Pharisee. Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and the thief on the cross on Luke 23. And Jesus had a very particular and special relationship with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Individuals by name in the Bible for the Lord of glory to pay attention to. The church in our city that has an apostle, a self-proclaimed so-called apostle, has you sign a statement when you join that church that you will never get to meet or talk to the apostle. Billy Graham, when he began his crusades back in the 60s and in the decades following, was not going to come to your town for a man. He was only going to come to a big city near you where the majority of the churches in that city had crossed denominational lines and had gathered together where they could promise him enough people to fill a stadium. This is the Lord of glory. This is no self-proclaimed apostle in Greenville, South Carolina, nor is it Billy Graham, the Presbyterian from North Carolina. This is the Lord of glory. And as he passed by in his travels, he saw a man. Let us embrace that. The Lord's apostles were no different. How about in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healing the cripple at the beautiful gate. The beautiful gate cripple, I like to call him. Instead of the man born blind. How about the eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9? Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Lydia in Acts 16? The Philippian jailer in Acts 16? Onesimus and Philemon separately in the book of Philemon, an elect lady in 2 John and Gaius in 3 John. Those are individuals, and some of them have epistles written in the New Testament about them, to them, and about them. You are a certain man, woman or child today, and you can trust a personal God to take care of you. He is easily divisible between two people, ten people, and seven and a half billion people. It makes no difference to him whatsoever. He is the infinite God. You should not allow your fearful, sinful flesh or the devil's darts to doubt God's care. You border on blasphemy. You border on being fearful and deserving a place in the lake of fire. Embrace him who is perfect and just and holy and right in all his works and all his ways. It is true that you do get lost in the crowd, but not in his crowd. We get lost in this crowd. We get lost in other crowds that we may be part of, but not in his crowd. God has chosen to deal personally and individually with each man, woman, and child, and this is an example of it right here in John 9. The Hall of Faith lists individuals and specific personal deeds done by them as individual persons. Children should know. Miriam, children should know that your angel is in heaven always beholding the face of your heavenly Father. If children should know this, how much more should adults, James? You've got one. You may need two, but 
You've got one at least. I meant that in a loving way, grandson. Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Their angels, speaking of little ones that believe on him, their angels do always behold my Father's face in heaven. The angels are always watching the Father's face in heaven. If the Father's face in heaven says, go rescue them, they go rescue. How many times have your children been rescued that you don't even know about because you are limited so severely to physical, material objects and cannot see the real universe taking place around you? Children, remember that. Each one has an angel, at least an angel. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Children should know that great men as children walked with God. Samuel, raise your hand. Thank you. Samuel, the man in the Bible with your name, was left at the age of five at the tabernacle by his mother Hannah, and it says he worshipped God there. Children can have a personal relationship with God and good parents, great parents, teach their children to have personal relationships with God. Because God and His Son, Jesus Christ, care and are concerned and involved in individual lives, including children. David would write in Psalm 71 twice that in his childhood and youth, God had been his God. Every individual person, man, woman, or child is uniquely created and known by God. This is one of the most hope-filled facts of our existence and of the theology that we understand from the Bible to excite our souls. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man. He saw a man. A man that wouldn't have got the attention of anyone. A blind man. A beggar. He couldn't produce. His parents had to put him out for public begging. But Jesus saw him, and that's what counts. You are not alone in the world. Believers know they will never be forsaken. Miriam, all others might forsake you, but God will never forsake you. David said, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. That's the promise of Scripture. I want you to believe it. I can't get past this. John 9 is about one man. There's only 260 chapters in the New Testament. How does one blind beggar get a whole chapter? I love that fact. Do not think I'm angry about it. I love that fact. Lord, I I worship you for loving individual men and choosing them and blessing them and using them for your greater glory in the way that you use this blind man. My brethren... Learn and love to walk with God and delight in Him personally in your own relationship with Him. Not in our corporate relationship only, but in your personal relationship. Remember the last section of John chapter 2. The final three verses warned us. Verses 23 through 25 warned us that there are some that believe on Him that Jesus would not commit Himself to. So we want to be sincere, genuine, true believers those that continue in his word and are disciples indeed, he will commit himself to them. He said that in the last three verses of John chapter 2, but what did he do in John chapter 3? Committed himself to Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus some of the most profound things found in the Bible. 
he shared some things with the woman of Samaria. Whatever conviction or opportunity you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ, run with it today. He is there for you. There are other foolish individual men like Agrippa who said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Like Felix, who said, I will call for thee when I have a convenient season. Don't you wait for a convenient season. You run to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. He will be there for you. He's passing by your pew right now. Do I have Bible evidence that he's passing by your pew right now? Revelation chapter 1 tells me that he walks among his golden candlesticks. If he's walking among his golden candlesticks and we are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he's here by his seven spirits. If you want to tell me that he's with the church of Ephesus and when he's with the church of Ephesus, he's not with the church at Thyatira, I will remind you that in the book of Revelation, the Spirit of God is presented to us as the seven spirits of God so that you can't make that error in calculation. He is with each church. He's with our church. He's passing by your pew. He sees. He knows you better than you know you. And he's had a plan from the foundation of the world for you. And if it's for the greater glory of God... Let him take away a few things from us and take away our comfort if we would have the right attitude. John chapter 9, verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. As Jesus passed by, these words connect us to the last verse of chapter 8. Notice the last clause of chapter 8 and in verse 59, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Passed by here means in the sense of departing and traveling on to his next destination. He just moved on. He passed by. And verse 1 of chapter 9 takes up with those words, and as Jesus passed by, our translators have interpolated the fact that the person passing by is Jesus and put his name in italics there. Jesus had wisely hid himself from his enemies in the previous chapter and now was departing from the temple. They had taken up stones to stone him there in the temple and he had departed from them for his own preservation to get away because it was not time for him to die yet. It would be in six months. Jehovah has a plan, has a purpose, and a destination but he nor his son Jesus are ever too busy for you. They're never too busy, even for the man born blind. Jesus had no preaching meeting because those present knew him not. We are going to discover here that those around the man healing him didn't know who Jesus was, didn't know where Jesus was, and neither did the blind man. So this was not a crusade. He had not filled a stadium. He had come for one man and then went on his way. Now, did that man need to have more help from the Lord Jesus than just his two physical eyes? Yes. Did that man find Jesus again? No. Jesus found him with the second pursuit of the man. Amen. Has the Lord ever come after you more than once in your life? Amen. You should all know that, that he's come after you multiple times. Right. Has your ignorance of where his location might be or his help might be your, been your fault in the past? It wasn't this man's fault. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
leaving him on his own for a little while. And he did marvelously well. Amen. The Lord's Spirit was with him, and the Lord came and found him again personally. Having the Lord pass by is the most important event in a life. Amen. Secure it. Secure it for yourself today. Because his eyes are open, and his ears are open, and his eyes are over. The righteous. The righteous. He will come for the righteous. He will come for the praying righteous. When Israel sighed by reason of bondage, the church of God by reason of bondage in Egypt, their sighing came up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. We just sang about the Lord of Sabaoth. That is not the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8. But Jesus is also the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That Hebrew word Sabaoth is a host, the angelic armies. Jesus will come. Secure it. A traveling Jesus, let me say this again, is more attentive and more affectionate than any family or friend to you. His traveling does not distract him like traveling distracts us or takes us away. It is his delight. It is our delight in him and our obedience to his word that turns his face toward us. He saw. He saw. When I look at this first verse of John chapter 9, and I look at those two words, he saw. The The man born blind couldn't see. No one else could see the man born blind and do him any good except a few coins in his cup. But Jesus saw. And when Jesus saw, things happened. He saw a man. But he saw. It is our Lord's vision that counts most. This is one of the favorite verses of Stephen Eastland. And you've heard it from him before. 2 Chronicles 16.9. I've already referred to it once. Let me quote it to you. For the eyes of the Lord... Not his arms, not his hands on this occasion, and some others like it, but his eyes. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Period. For those whose heart is perfect toward the Lord, his eyes run to and fro And in Zechariah chapter 4, they're called the seven eyes of God, referencing the seven spirits of God, running to and fro throughout the whole earth, a perfect number of seven, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect with him. He saw. Most men saw the man to no avail. Those with the best hearts could do so little for him. God and Jesus see the affliction of men. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 9 tells us that. Even Jerusalem in advance, Jesus, looking upon the city of Jerusalem, wept over the city, the Bible tells us. He saw in advance what was coming 40 years later and wept for that city and its children. In Zechariah chapter 4, when the Israelites were discouraged about taking that mound of rubble that had once been Jerusalem and rebuilding that city and rebuilding God's temple, the prophet Zechariah was sent to them in chapter 4 
that told them, don't despise the day of small things. Your efforts might appear small and insignificant. There's only a few of you that have come back from Babylon, but you're going to be crying grace to this city, and it will be built. Don't despise the day of small things, because the eyes of the Lord are with you, and his seven spirits. That's all in Zechariah chapter 4. Because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that spirit is compared to eyes. Jesus saw in John 9 and verse 1. This man, blind from birth, had not seen a man, nor had any seen him get sight, but Jesus saw him. All views of this man by others, including his parents, were only hopeless pity. But it's never hopeless pity from the Lord. It's helpful power from the Lord. He had spent his life fully dependent on first parents and then public charity. Parental love may be great, but it cannot give sight, nor can public charity. But the power of God can. And so that was here for this man. Hopelessness is faithlessness without regard for God seeing your calamity. Why would you be hopeless? You're an unbeliever. So you qualify by the second descriptive adjective of those going to hell. The first is fearful. The second is unbelieving. Because you're hopeless. Why are you hopeless? Our God is the God of hope. He sees everything. He misses nothing. He makes no mistakes. He has a glorious future prepared for himself and for you if you will respond properly. This man responded properly. How many verses did this man mock the idea of going to wash spit mud out of his eyes? How many verses did he question it? He just went and he came seeing. There are so many lessons in this passage for us. The Lord expects us to go and do what he's told us to do and what we're able to do. And he expects us to do it with zeal. And he expects us to do it with greater zeal the older we get. And we'll get to that in its place. In spite of the way the Jews had abused Jesus in chapter 7 and chapter 8, here Jesus is doing public good and taking a man off of public charity and making him productive, even though that nation deserved no more favors by him for what, the way they had treated him in the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus passed by, Lord, pass by us. Pass by our church and have mercy upon it. Pass by our families, our marriages, our souls, and have mercy upon us. He saw a man. God see in his providence sees each person as an individual and relates to them personally. Look at Matthew chapter 10 while holding your place at John chapter 9. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Fear not them which kill the body. Now that's a pretty serious handicap. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is future torment for soul and body. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? 
They're cheap, worthless birds. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them? Not two of them, not ten of them, not twenty of them, but one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Jumping to verse 31, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Embrace that. This is Jesus teaching philosophy. There is so much philosophy in the first few verses of John chapter 9. There's philosophy right here. The purpose and cause of things that happen to men in life. The relation of things that happen to men in life. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. And in verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That is the intimate detail that God has of each of us, like we read in Psalm 139 earlier, that every, every member of our bodies being fashioned in the womb in a secret place in the lowest parts of the earth, curiously wrought there, marvelously made, God has all those members written. The number of hairs on our head are written in his book. And he fulfills them in time. He knows all these things. Not a sparrow falls. Not one. And it takes two to equal one farthing. So a sparrow is only worth a half a farthing. But we are worth many sparrows. Trust him. He saw a man. This rule of God's attentive care also applies to sparrows. And it applies to his attentive detail to the hairs on your head. God knows everything about you in the most incredible detail. And on this basis, there is no reason to fear anything. Because he will protect. If you believe God is, and if you believe God rewards, that's Hebrews 11 and verse 6, you are in a better category than sparrows with many examples and promises of God taking care of you. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. God chooses how each one is born, and he is perfectly just and right in his choices. Let's start with the fact and the question, are you thankful for your sight, your physical sight? You should bless God for the ability to see. It is his gift that when you were taken from the womb, then, days later, examinations were made, Things were passed before your eyes. Parents watched you follow people across the room, follow mobiles that were trying to make you insane, hanging above you in a crib. Sight is a huge blessing. God made choice that you would see. Thank him for it. It's a tremendous gift. And you have so many other gifts. The man born blind had other gifts. He could beg, and beg he did. And whatever you can do, and whatever you should be doing, you should do it. You should bless God for the ability to see. What does it take to make an eyeball? I could have sent you video clips last night in the preparatory, but that just isn't my way. My way is to give you the word of God and to present Jesus Christ to you. But if you want to go home and do a few YouTube searches or Google searches for videos, you can read a little bit and see a little bit about the glory of the eyeball that God has made. That eyeball didn't evolve. Pop. Oh, we have an eyeball. 
we had matter so dense that it had energy of its own and it expanded and filled the universe and bah, there was an eyeball. Not a chance. The incredible creative design and the details of an eyeball show intelligent design behind it. And we know the intelligent being that designed it. Amen. The Lord Jehovah. The eyeball's an incredible thing. It didn't evolve. Everyone would have died the successive 13 trillion generations necessary to evolve an eyeball would have all died because they wouldn't have been able to see or hear or anything else. Thank you, Lord, for our eyes. What does it take to make an eyeball? What does it take for it to work right? And it works right. Thank you, Lord. It's a single spiritual eye with focused vision that is the best. Jesus made an argument, if your eye be single, meaning good, pure, and right, then it's able to take in light and see everything in a room. And we want that kind of a spiritual eye that has a singular focus on the things of God and is not double vision of seeing things on earth and things in heaven and trying to have our cake and eat it too. The Lord will give us our cake and let us eat it too if we'll put him first. This is all in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. No man can serve two masters, for he's going to hate one and love the other. But if our eye is focused, and it's a spiritual eye in that place, though compared to a natural eye, it is a blessing. Is it better to be an Air Force pilot with 2010 vision, meaning that you can see at 20 feet what the average person can only see at 10 feet? That is wonderful vision. 2010. Is it better to be an Air Force pilot with 2010 vision or to be a blind Fanny Crosby? Do you have your priorities right? Do you have to have 130 IQ to know Jesus Christ? Would it be better to have 130 IQ and think something of yourself? 130 isn't very high. But if you had a 130 IQ and you thought highly of yourself, compare that to a person with a 90 or 100 IQ that knows Jesus and trusts Jesus. What do you want for your children? Where is the emphasis for your children? God knows your heart because you don't care about their spiritual nature in, as, in comparison to their physical or to their educational. Show me a man like Joseph or David or Daniel that puts the things of God first and he's going to surpass any GPA. Right. As they proved and shown and I've seen in my life and seen in others' lives. It's the Lord opening doors and blessing that is so much more important. Oh, let's make sure that we have our priorities right about our children. I know when we pull that child out, and we've just had one pulled out of the mother's birth canal in the last few days, you check its toes, you check its eyelashes, you check its swallowing, you're looking for a wet diaper. Oh, the joy of a wet diaper. The plumbing works so far. And so we look for those things. But let's make sure that those children that are given to us, we think a whole lot more than that they have toes and fingers like other animals. Right. Let's see that they, and, and make sure by constant daily effort, more than three meals. Three meals, why is that so important to you? 
and that your children wash their hands before the meals. Why is that so important to you if you neglect a far greater responsibility, and that is to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach them the character of trusting God, of fearing God, and relying on Him, and accepting whatever He does in your life. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We read about Job, but all our children should grow up and learn to think the same way, to respond with the same words. That's why they're in the Bible for us. These parents of this blind man soon figured out that their infant son could not see anything at all. A burden was put on them and him from birth since he required extra care. God can take away thorns in the flesh. God could have caused this blind child to see at the age of six months or six years or 16 years. Why was he 35? Because God made choice. But God can give grace. And in listening to this man, there is grace in his life. He doesn't complain anywhere. He does not ask Jesus why he took so long healing him. He does not blame God. He gives his healer credit that he must be a man from God because he did such a thing. And he did it at his own risk of losing his place in the synagogue and being ridiculed by the learned elders of Zion. God can take away thorns in the flesh, or he can give you enough grace to live above those thorns in the flesh. That's what he did for the Apostle Paul, so that the Apostle Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. This thorn in Paul's flesh, do you think it was small? Paul said that it was a buffeting messenger from Satan. To be buffeted is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was blindfolded and buffeted by the soldiers in Herod's judgment hall and Pilate's judgment hall. He was being battered by his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We can speculate all day and it has no value. But he gloried in it once. God told him through Jesus Christ that my grace is displayed better through your infirmity than your prosperity. And so Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in this. Because when I am weak, then am I strong. What gave him that strength? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And so this blind man, and so us, we should have the spirit of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. No parent deserves perfect children, for we chose death in Adam and every sin thereafter. We chose it. Job blessed God for taking back what he had given, but God might not give some things. Imperfect children can always be less perfect, and wise men lay it to heart. In every trial including physical or mental birth handicaps, there are blessings. Every trial is common. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, this one verse is important. Each one of us have a nature prone to think that our situation is unique, that our situation is more severe than others' situations. And that is not what the Bible teaches. If there was ever a man that had such a situation, it was Job, but there are no Jobs here. No one has ever had a life anything like Job's. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Believe that. It's the Word of God. But God is faithful. Contrary and opposite and adversarially to your temptations, God is faithful. Who will not suffer you, he will not allow or permit you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Every trial God sends is by infinite faithfulness. Look at what it says. God is faithful. And wisdom for you, if you respond to it the way you should. If you do not, a trial can be hell on earth. Notice this wonderful verse. No temptation taking you, but such as is common. You say, well, I'm experiencing something right now no one else in the church is experiencing. So, they're experiencing things right now that you're not experiencing. Why do you want to do this tit-for-tat junk? Believe the verse. I believe the verse. Your trials are my trials. Plus, I have my trials. Are we going to sit here and argue and make a ledger as to who has the most trials? The verse says that they're all common. They're just different in type. They're different in kind. But no temptation is too much for anyone. No trial is too much for anyone because God is faithful. God is faithful. And so as we look at that, a man born blind. I've I've held a little baby in the last few days. And we thank God for her formation. We thank God for every child's formation. We thank God for every child's mental ability. Those mental abilities vary all over the map. The physical coordination children have varies all over the map. But God is faithful. We need to be like the Bible tells us to be. We need this verse in our minds. This is part of philosophy. This is the philosophy of how to live life in a way that pleases God, recognizing His rules, His promises, His goodness. God is faithful. Who will not suffer you? He will not allow you to have something happen to you that you are not able to bear. He will with the temptation that he allows in your life. Notice, it's his allowance. It's his permission that it comes. Also, make a way to escape. You can live above it. You can live around it. You can live through it. By God's help, he's got a way there for you. That ye may be able to bear it. This is the word of God. And so the parents of the man born blind had to deal with this issue when they found that he was death, death blind from birth. Sight that counts most is God's vision and view of you and your children, not yours of a sunset or theirs of a sunset. Sight that counts next is their spiritual discernment, not their physical recognition of junk. Anything that you can see with your physical eyes is junk. Because God's going to burn it all up. Doesn't mean anything to Him. In comparison to what's coming. And in comparison to things that are invisible. The things that are invisible are of far greater value than the things that are visible. And it's those 
and the sight to see those that we want to exalt and honor the most. And this man born blind is going to see some things that he hadn't seen before and he wouldn't be able to see when he came back from the pool of Siloam and that is to see the Lord Jesus Christ with understanding and to believe on him and to know that he was the Son of God and to embrace him as such. Verse 2, John 9, 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Oh, disciples. His apostles, though the greatest gift in the church, had very little spiritual knowledge. He had to rebuke them as fools at times and as Satan at other times. He had to open their understanding for new levels of wisdom, which he did after his resurrection. And they needed some of it right now before his resurrection. They did ask the right one, however. If you have questions, there's one person to truly go to, right. and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to call him Master. There is no other Master on earth that has even a clue compared to this Master. In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He engaged lawyers at 12 and confused them at 30. Amen. I have to share this because I love these verses about Jesus in Isaiah 11. I'm going to read five verses from Isaiah 11. And love these verses about the intellectual wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, like these disciples in John 9, 2, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Amen. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Amen. Amen. That's our Lord Jesus. Master, and that is where we should go for every question we have. Master. And the answers are given to us in the pages of Scripture. We don't need to meditate in the way that Catholicism is now promoting meditation. We need to go to God's Word. God's Word is all, the truth of God and His revelation has already been given to us. I just gave you a verse about philosophy. Jesus is just about to give us some more philosophy. Why do bad things happen? Why was this man born blind? Who sinned? Answers are in God's word. We have all the answers. If there's a question that we don't find an answer for in God's word, it's not the deficiency of God's word. It's our deficiency in knowledge of God's word. Right. It's our problem, not the Bible's problem. Right. Do you understand what you should do for every question or perplexity in life? God gave you an incomparable manual for detailed answers to any question. How everything works from stars to birds to alcohol to fools to idolaters. He deals with them all and everything in between. How things relate from business to nations to angels to capital to risk. In the Bible. 
Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. Isn't that amazing? When did he write that? A strict inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. 1776. What happened to the first 5,776 years of world history? God's people knew a whole lot more than Adam Smith knew in 1776. Unbelievable ignorance in the British Isles. What a bunch of dark pagans on that little piece of rock sticking out of the North Atlantic and their inability to figure things out. When the Bible had figured things out so much earlier, in 1000 B.C., that is 2,776 years in front of Adam Smith, I rounded off to 3,000 in writing proverb commentaries, that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs and explained capital and risk and profit. That's not even mentioning his book of philosophy in Ecclesiastes about the purpose of it all. How you can deal with fear is in the Bible. How you can deal with marriage is in the Bible. There's only one way for a good marriage. It's the Bible way. How to deal with civil rulers and how to look at civil rule in politics. Pornography, hair length, all of it in the Word of God. You have certain and final answers for things confounding everyone else. And so I cannot just read over this word master quickly and blow by it. Because that is the one that you should go to. You shouldn't need to go to anyone else. First, we go to the Word of God. And by His Spirit, He has helped us interpret the vast majority of it. And we thank you for that, Lord. This is a foolish and simplistic question based on their ignorance and their mutual exclusion of possibilities. Follow with me. His disciples forgot Solomon's rule that all things happen alike to all men, whether righteous or wicked. That's Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 3. You cannot tell God's love or hatred by external circumstances in the ordinary providence of God. His disciples forgot Job's life. Great afflictions may not be for great sin. I thought that lesson should have been learned in those 42 chapters, that there didn't have to be sin involved for some great affliction in a man's life. That's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar thought. But I thought that book was in the Bible to prove that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar didn't know what they were talking about and were wrong and that a righteous man would be angry at those three men for their ridiculous assault on Job for wickedness. See, the disciples hadn't said master enough in their lives. They should have read the Bible before they asked their question. This is a foolish and unlearned question. It's already been answered in the Bible. Why did it matter who had sinned? Let's think about it from another angle. Why did it matter who had sinned when they might have asked Jesus to heal the man? Would you think for just a moment? Wouldn't it have been better? Master, do you think you could heal this poor man? Do you know how happy he and his parents would be? And how you could get glory to yourself? Instead, who sinned, Lord? Oh, oh, don't look down on those disciples too much. Because guess what? We are experts in looking at someone else's predicament and saying, I wonder where they sin. Obviously, the Lord's favoring my cause because that hasn't happened to me. You're embracing the prosperity of fools. 
That's not how we're supposed to look at things. In the day of adversity, in the day of prosperity, we're supposed to consider a whole lot more soberly than that. Example, why did it matter who had sinned when they might have asked for the man to be healed? It is depraved nature to see sin in others' circumstances long before our own. We see something bad happen to someone else. They must have sin in their life. Something bad happens to us. This is God's trial of my faith. I'm a martyr for the kingdom of God, heaven. No, you're not. Why don't you learn the four reasons, and then you can see if you can sort out what happened to you and why. And remember that your God is so infinite, he can combine all four. He can put four in a juicer and come up with all four reasons as to why bad things happen to Christians. He's infinitely wise. And I love him for that, to keep us humbly fearing before him. Men foolishly and hastily apply to others the truth that God judges sin. They want to foolishly and hastily apply it to others, yet they don't apply it equally to themselves. They ignorantly miss the many other factors an infinitely wise God includes in dealing with men. Such reasoning is mutually exclusive by rejecting crossover of good or evil. God can send evil for good in a good man. And God can send good for evil in an evil man. Did he send evil for good in the good man Job? Measure any way you want. Well, what about poor Job? Do you want to talk about poor Job? James 5 says you should think about poor Job and you should get an accountant to do some accounting for poor Job. What was the end of the Lord like with Job? Double all that he had. He was a rich man to start, but he was a doubly rich man when it was over. God sent evil for good in the life of Job and it gives us a 42 chapter book that is very profitable to us. God can send good for evil to an evil man. It's called the prosperity of fools in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 32. The favorite example, the best, one of the best examples in America are the winners of lotteries. That is fantastic. When someone wins a lottery, that is the prosperity of fools. It causes everyone else to run down to their little cheap corner gas station and buy lottery tickets. They volunteer for taxation. A lottery ticket is taxation. But it's taxation of poor people that don't have earned income. Successful people don't buy lottery tickets. And on and on we could go on that subject. But they win one. In the vast majority of cases, have you ever read the biographical sketches of those that won lotteries? It destroys their lives because they have no concept of money. That's why they bought a lottery ticket. So God sent good for evil to an evil person. And in Proverbs 132, it is called the prosperity of fools because it deceives people to just continue in their foolishness. And that is evil. And God does it for his glory because if you don't want to learn wisdom from the wisdom that he offers in creation, in providence, in conscience, and scripture, then you don't deserve to be protected from a lottery. Oh, the odds in a lottery. You know, somebody would buy a lottery ticket and you, then you walk up to him and say, hey, I'll pay your airplane ticket and let's go to Vegas. Oh, I'd never gamble. 
Let's, let me say that again, since you didn't seem to understand it. <laughs> Someone buys a lottery ticket. You know, they squeeze the last 50 cents out of their pocket or whatever lottery tickets cost today and buy themselves a lottery ticket. And you walk up to them and say, I've just purchased your airfare, a plane ticket to go to Vegas. Will you go with me? I would never gamble. You ought to see the odds in Vegas compared to the odds of a lottery. Vegas is Santa Claus. One or two percent. They just take one or two percent because they know once they get you in there with free drinks and free food and pretty ladies walking around, you're going to keep playing your money over and over and over again. And if you have two percent taken away each time you play it, you've only got to play your hundred bucks a few times and all of a sudden you end up with nothing. But when you walk out and you look up at the big sign, it says we pay out 98.153%. Who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Foolish reasoning to think that way. God can send evil for good in a good man and good for evil in an evil man. All pagan gods are idiots and the people that worship them are idiots. The Bible says this. All pagan gods are idiots, so there can only be good for good or evil for evil. So everything is black and white to a pagan mind. Their gods only do good for good and evil for evil because they're idiots. They can't have crossover, so everything is mutually exclusive with them. If something bad happens to a person, you did something bad. That is just so deep. Do you know what kind of an IQ it takes to figure that out? Somewhere around 60. That's a stone. And most idols are made of stone. That's a totem pole. Because they don't have the wisdom and infinite wisdom of our God and what he does with men. Consider how a barbarous people that Paul met on the island of Melita reasoned. Paul lands on the island of Melita. And he's throwing some sticks on the fire and a viper comes out, attaches to his hand. They know that it's a fatal viper bite and he's going to fall down dead. And they immediately reasoned, this man is guilty of murder and fate has just struck him down. No, that's an idiot. The viper jumped out of the fire to give Paul an occasion to preach the gospel on that island. Because he shook it off into the fire and didn't fall down dead, then they knew that he had divine powers. Are you, I hope you're with me on this. There's philosophy here. I can't just race over this and entertain you with the exchange between the Pharisees and the blind man. There's too much right here in these first opening verses. We will pick up the pace later, maybe. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar foolishly reasoned the same way as those barbarous people. That's what Luke called them on the island of Melita. The apostles fell for the same simplistic, superficial judgment here. Jesus had just taught them in John 7, 24, judge not by the appearance. What meets your eyes, the first superficial, light analysis of a thing, is not to be trusted. Judge not by the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Instead of leaping to some conclusion that these parents sinned and thus their child was born blind because they had sin in their lives, you've leaped to a conclusion you have no basis for. Judge righteous judgment. The apostles knew all men were sinners, so what great sin caused blindness? All men sinned. What happened to the apostolic reasoning here? Because their minds weren't open and they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit yet. Consider how Jesus rebuked this notion of public calamities. 
Luke chapter 13, I gave it to you in an update very recently. Luke chapter 13. Jesus was told about Pilate killing some Jewish worshipers and their blood was mingled with their own sacrifices. Jesus said, do you think that those men were greater sinners than everyone else in Israel? That's a rhetorical question. That is foolish reasoning. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Are you with me? It's wrong to make judgments like that. There's too many other factors involved, and there can be too many other reasons for God to work his judgment in a situation. And then Jesus brought up another example. He said, what about that tower at Siloam that fell and crushed 13 people? Do you think those 13 were worse sinners than everyone else? Nay, that is wrong reasoning. I tell you, unless you repent, you're all going to likewise perish. And that is what should have been preached after 9-11. Instead of standing on the steps of the Capitol and singing, God bless America, God's not going to bless this America, and God's God's not in the business of blessing when our nation is so sinful. It should have been, except we repent, we're all going to perish like this. They should have, put a, they should have given us close-ups of the leapers, the jumpers. You've got to see the jumpers. You know, our media only wants you to see certain things. You need to see some jumpers. We needed to have some of the splats at the bottom. You needed to think about heat so great that you would leap out of a window a hundred stories up. And except you repent... We shall all likewise perish. No one had that message except a a handful. The world reasons terribly. The world likes to say for unusual blessings, he or she must be living right. They don't understand that could be the prosperity of fools of Proverbs 132. Pharaoh's political trajectory was outstanding for one purpose, for God to get himself a name in the earth. Seven true words from Ezekiel are these. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It's a true fact that sin can bring evil and judgment, but there are many factors. God is merciful, so judgment may be withheld at times or deferred at others. Evil men may be blessed naturally now in light of future eternal torment. Bible says that. God can send evil for good, as I've mentioned, and good for evil. Men, consider how God never mentioned David's horrible sin with polygamy. God overlooked some things in his mercy. Consider how God counted Asa's heart perfect in spite of the high places. Consider how God blessed and used Sennacherib as a hammer for a while. Then he hammered the hammer. He hammered Sennacherib. God sees infinite factors and purposes compared to to the very few examples I just gave you. And he manages them all in the circumstances of our lives. Some have thought that a bad affliction in life might be due to an unknown sin. Some of you may have thought, may think, that an affliction in your life is due to some sin that you haven't recognized yet. To think that is to imply that God is not children for something he, didn't, for something he did not explain to them. Neither would magistrates. When you're punished, you're punished for a very specific crime. You're implying that God is not fair. Don't think that way. If you are ignorant of a sin, it is a sin of ignorance and gets very little chastening. If you are confused by what sin caused chastening, God will reveal it to you because he's God and he's better than any earthly father and we would never do that to our children. When things do not work like they should, think of sin in general, 
and don't try to be so specific. Men are foolish to forget the general corruption of sin in most everything. Sin just corrupts everything we have. Moths and rust corrupt everything, and thieves break through everywhere to steal most things in life. Our bodies are constantly aging and dying, so health problems are normal. Machinery, even if stainless steel or platinum, will break sooner than later. And so we should remember the general consequence of sin. It's called the bondage of corruption. And so things are corrupting around us. And recognize that first, rather than just always wanting to pin down some sin for some specific event in your life. God will make that one plain if you need it. Otherwise, remember that sin in general corrupts. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word, and we'll come back and take up after our break.